Hey, hello, what's up, and welcome into this edition of Geek Garage Goes to the Movies. I'm Ted, and joining me as always is David. What's up, David? Hello, how are you? Good, good. Um, I know I'm incredibly excited for this episode. I think it's safe to say that you are too, For David, sure. You are excited, yeah. that's good, because we're going to cover the latest, the ninth movie from Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Now, a lot has been said about this movie, some of it good, some of it bad, some of the reviews have been worth your time, and some of them have not. Like this one. I can tell you right now, this ain't going to be worth your time. <laughs> but we're going to do it regardless. So before we start, uh, a couple of quick notes. As always, this podcast will be spoiler heavy. So yes. please keep that in mind if you have not seen the film yet. Or if you don't care about spoilers. Oh, right, or way. if you don't plan to see the film. You know, it's not going to matter that we spoil it. But if it's something that you're looking forward to and you haven't seen it yet, we are going to talk about a lot of the major plot points. So just keep that in mind. Yep. Uh, as always, we encourage you to see the film first and then come back and listen to it. Uh, additionally, as weird as this may sound, a little knowledge of 1969 Los Angeles would be beneficial before you see the movie. Indeed. Uh, in particular, some info surrounding the Manson family. Um, anyway, I'm ready. Dave is ready. We hope you're ready. So let's go. Let's do it. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff! We have a liftoff! Alright, Ted, you ready to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Absolutely, yes. Awesome. Uh, so I think we're going to do some uh, just initial service level thoughts before we do a deep dive. Uh, that okay with you? Yes. Cool. Listeners, I hope that's all right with you because that's matter. what we're You're doing. Not we're not yeah. here to have an opinion. Right. So yeah. Fast exactly. forward if you don't like it. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I guess I'll go first. Sure. So I love this movie. I, I loved it for a lot of the reasons that a lot of other people have loved this movie or liked this movie. And I've also enjoy it for a lot of reasons that haven't been mentioned one of the main reasons and i know that you will echo this is because it's reminiscent of a few of tarantino's early works like pulp fiction and mainly jackie brown uh the the you know the whole how the the story is propelled how it's set up how the it it slowly builds over time it's very reminiscent of those kinds of uh his films and I derived a lot of enjoyment out of how the movie unfolded like that. Uh, I also really enjoyed the actors' performances. <clears throat> I let's see. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, just overall, I I thought it was awesome. I'm I haven't done an official ranking of all of Tarantino's works yet. Uh, with with this one now included. But I know it probably falls pretty high on the list. Uh, with uh, with this being his ninth work, I'd say it falls within the top five of of his nine for me. So it, it does rank pretty high up there. Um, sorry, sorry. I I know that's not a lot of initial thoughts and really clearly thought out. But um, yeah, I'll I'll go ahead and pass it to you. So then we can go deep dive. Yeah, so I agree. I fucking loved this movie. 
Um, this is the most fun I've had at the. Well, I was gonna say this is the most fun I had at the movies this year. Then I remember we saw John Wick like four times. So I'm gonna, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm gonna backtrack a little bit and say that this is in the running for the most fun I had at the movies this year. Right. That opening night for Wick was. That's gonna be a tough one to beat, but yeah, uh, very different kind of enjoyment, I guess. Anyway, uh, I did thoroughly enjoy this movie. I'll get into some of the deeper reasons why, like you said. It just, man, it was just a fun fucking movie. I don't, I don't know what else to really say other than that. It was just super enjoyable. Um, it hit a lot of the buttons of stuff that I like. So, mm-hmm. like, late 60s aesthetics, late 60s Hollywood. Um, like, all the cowboy shows that, like, <clears throat> I watched when I was a kid. Right. Now, I wasn't alive in the 60s, the 50s and the 60s, of course. But a lot of stuff that I watched on, like, TV land. You right. Know? Um, it just hit a lot of those buttons for me. And, and it had a lot of really great performances in it, which I definitely want to talk more about. But yeah, this one just it, it hit the spot. Yeah, uh, it, I was gonna say you mentioned, uh, you know, kind of nailing that really late '60s vibe. One thing that I read about this movie is that they actually filmed in a couple locations, like diners uh, mm. or a diner. I can't remember what scene it is, but I've heard it mentioned several times that this diner really hasn't changed since. Uh, it came about in like the 50s and 60s right uh, so that they basically didn't have to do anything to make this diner look like it was straight out of you know 1969 right is because it hasn't changed um so i thought that you know being able to film at actual locations like that where they didn't have to do do much tweaking or any tweaking was really cool so so yeah i i'll definitely echo the the aesthetic portion of you know 1969 Hollywood, you know, mm-hmm. that, that whole grind. For sure. Yeah. So, yeah, like I said in, uh, in my kind of little intro, I, I think that if you enjoyed some of uh, Tarantino's early works like Jackie Brown um, and, and Pulp Fiction, then, then you'll really get a kick out of this because a lot of what pushed the story forward in this movie is kind of dissimilar from how the story was pushed forward in in like Inglorious Bastards or Kill Bill where in, in in those movies there's there's a very clear objective uh, and and for the most part you kind of know where things are going like in Kill Bill it's in the title she's going to kill Bill It's and, a much more straightforward sort of story arc. Right but but with this with Once Upon a Time you it's not like you have no idea where it's going but it's it's pretty ambiguous. Granted, that that could be a little bit of perspective on my part because you know, like you said in the intro, where a working knowledge of the Manson family in 1969 Hollywood is definitely suggested. I didn't have much of that going into, and I know we discussed this, so it kind of hindered my overall first experience of the movie. But <clears throat> Going back and doing a little bit of research on the Manson family and, and all that, it definitely made more sense going forward. But like I was saying, I, I I generally genuinely enjoyed how the story of this movie was propelled, how it kind of kept you guessing a little bit. Uh, and, it, and it kind of felt very flowy where things were just kind of happening and you were just enjoying the ride. It's much more of a slice of life type right. movie or a day in the life type movie whereas like you said like Inglorious Bastards is a good example where it's definitely like a, a men on a mission movie yeah for a big chunk of it uh, or the the narrative is very clear 
like Shoshana's story arc is very clear. The bastard's story arc is very clear. Right. And sort of set in motion, point A leads to point B leads to point C, et cetera. Whereas this one is definitely kind of like you said, a little more free flowing. Um, it doesn't have that really rigid storyline. It's it's just kind of like two guys doing stuff right. for large portions of the movie, which is not a knock at all. You know, right. that's a that's a legitimate like. And then the beautiful technique. Margot Robbie watching herself uh, crushing in, it in, in in the movie theater, and that just that whole yeah. scene was completely endearing. I got, a, I got a lot of thoughts on that. We'll get to right, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, I I kind of had uh, you know just a little bit to say about that. Uh, a lot of uh, what's in my notes is just incoherent rambling, uh, much like just the every rest other of, episode we've done, <laughs> or just every aspect of my life. <laughs> but you know, that's that's neither here nor there. Uh, but yeah, I like I said, I just I enjoyed. I, I felt like it the the storyline and how it progressed in in this movie was a nice breath of fresh air for both Tarantino and just movies in general. Where, you know, you made mention of someone's, I think it was someone's tweet where they, they said it was nice to go into a movie this summer where it was, where you didn't need a working knowledge of a franchise. Yeah, and I, I wish I could remember and give credit to who, um, who who tweeted that originally. It was a tweet I saw. I tried to go back and find it and I couldn't find it, but... If we find it, we'll put it in in the notes in right. the in the episode description. Um, but just to kind of paraphrase paraphrase what they were saying, it was like this is it was just nice to go into a theater and not have to have like a working knowledge of the last twenty one Marvel movies, for example, right? Or like know about Godzilla or whatever, yeah, or what happened in the first two John Wick movies or something like that. And while I liked the Godzilla King of the Monsters and John Wick three, like I definitely also understood that where. In a summer dominated by sequels, in in a medium increasingly dominated by sequels and uh, adaptations, it was just like it was nice to go in and not need to know a lot about this because it's just like you could just experience this movie. And like I said in the intro, and you kind of echoed, it does help to have a little bit of knowledge of, of some of what's going on. Yeah, but it doesn't. But it's not necessary. It's not necessary. Like, like I still fucking love this movie, and I knew little to nothing about. Uh, Charles Manson and right. the Manson family and uh, like I said I still fucking love this movie yeah um, so that was just and I was like man I, I agree with that interestingly this is the first original IP uh, for the movies at least that crossed the hundred million dollar mark uh, mm-hmm. every, everything else that's crossed hundred million dollars domestically has been um, or maybe it wasn't domestically maybe it's just hundred million dollars in general but uh, everything else that's reached that milestone this year has been a sequel or an adaptation of an existing work, which definitely makes sense uh, from from a financial standpoint. Those are the the movies that tend to make the money, uh, but they're also the most prevalent movies just out there. Period it, it is you know the people want to uh, movie makers you know the ones that write the checks. They're they want to bank on something that's going to make money. And while that makes business, fiscal sense, business decisions, yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, it, it's nice to see something like this and it being pulled off, you know, for very, sure, very for well. Sure. So, the first thing I want to hit on is the title "Once Upon a Time in Hollywood." Mm-hmm. Um, it's evocative of a few different things. Of course, Sergio Leone had the um, he had two movies that started with "Once Upon a Time in," uh, both excellent movies, as is his whole filmography, really. But right. the other thing it's evocative of is a fairy tale. Yeah. Right. Once a you know, there was a castle once upon a time or whatever, what have you. And ultimately, this film 
is a fairy tale of sorts. It's an alternate history, definitely, and an exaggerated reality. All of the quote-unquote good guys win, get their happy ending, live mm-hmm. happily ever after, and the bad guys, the evil, are defeated. In this case, it's the Manson family. Right. The protagonists really walk, or at least the, the main two, Cliff and Rick, really walk this tightrope, and you kind of have to think, like, are they actually good guys? Right? Um, they're both really xenophobic. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the line that it it really fucking cracked me up, and I think about this at least once a day since seeing it, where they're in the parking lot, and Cliff says, don't cry in front of the Mexicans. Right. And that just fucking... Like, as a Latino person, that hit my funny bone and just did not stop. I fucking almost pissed in the theater. I was laughing at that so hard. And no one would have thought twice about it because everyone else was pissing themselves laughing. Yeah. And it was, it's just, uh, it was just a delivery. He was like, I'm crying in front of the fucking Mexicans. <laughs> right. you know, it's just so funny. Um, but there, there's, a, there's a sort of xenophobia that runs, you know, throughout the whole course of the movie with them. And they have this really intense dislike of the new or the others, in this case, hippies, particularly Rick. Right. He has a couple of different parts where he's just like, these fucking hippies, man, you know. Um, also, Cliff may have killed his wife. That is a distinct possibility. It's, it, it's never really said for certain. Right. Um, there's, a, there's a quick flashback where they're on a boat. He and his wife are on a boat arguing and he has a spear gun right and it just kind of cuts and and it doesn't say for sure there are definitely characters in the movie that believe it mm-hmm. so it's kind of like a it's a rumor i guess within the the universe of the movie um and it's kind of up in the air honestly i it could go either way yeah um, i haven't really decided which side of the fence i came down on with regards to that yeah it's it seemed like one of those things like they they brought it up uh, the first time you hear about it it, it kind of comes off like sh- a shock factor kind of thing it comes out of nowhere right it, where you're like he killed his fucking wife man and then you're you're like whoa dude's like right. walking around he's he's a free man and he killed his wife but then like they put it Okay, I, I say, quote-unquote, put it in perspective, where you actually get some context, you see them, you know, on a boat, but you, you really don't know what happened, and you're kind of led to believe that no one really knows the, the full truth, and mm. that, like, maybe she went overboard. Uh, right. And he just neglected to uh, to help her. Mm. I I don't know. Like I said, it, it leaves it fairly open-ended. Um, it's just one of those things where, like, it's a, it, it gives his character some complexity. Right. And it made me really think, like, man, he's pretty much the coolest motherfucker that's ever walked the earth as portrayed in this film. Right. But then, like, you have to kind of wrangle with this, which, if he did, that really changes things. It you suddenly know. doesn't make Bruce Lee seem too bad of a guy in this movie. We'll come to that. That was a big, a big thing as well. All right. Uh, my main point of this is like looking at that, looking at like the xenophobia and some of the things like that. If we look at that with modern sensibilities, it's super disconcerting. Within the context of the movie, and these being two, you know, fairly at least Rick is fairly well to do um, white guys in 1969 Hollywood. Mm-hmm. While I'm not saying it's okay to be this way, it, it like it fits. Like right. That's probably how these guys would have actually been were they real people yeah i I think the the hippie hatred culture was a pretty prevalent one amongst prejudices in 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 the the, that era to be fair it's okay to hate hippies i mean you know i 
I was just throwing it out there. It's okay. It's okay. I, I, from from what I've you know learned and researched and have you know talked to my parents about, it it seems that was it's okay. To that was piece. the case. It's okay. <laughs> All right, moving forward. <laughs> what else you got? Um, I mean, I I fucking love the acting performances. Uh, th- this might be my favorite out of the the entire movie is the actual performances other than how the story unfolds. I love the back and forth uh, like you said with with Brad Pitt's character and um, and DiCaprio's character. Uh, I thought that they mesh really well. I thought it was really cool to see two Tarantino film alums come together in in one film. I thought that was really cool. We uh, we discussed this a little bit off air but I thought it was really cool how they how well they both played their respective roles. Cliff was so perfectly fine with like playing second fiddle to um to what's DiCaprio's Rick Rick yeah um he was so fine with playing you know backup to to him you know being like his stuntman. In the professional world, but also kind of in, in in real life, uh, I, I thought that was you know really cool how he he was he he understood not like necessarily depressingly accepted the fact that he was knowing not going to amount to someone famous. He just he was okay with being you know that guy. Yeah, their relationship actually was really interesting. That's one of the notes I had because it stays true throughout the whole film. There's not a moment where, like, they have a, the quote-unquote dark night of the soul where they're like, we're not friends anymore. Right. Like, they stay. Which is something that I was very weary and afraid of, that, mm-hmm. that it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, how, how those things, the, those typical, you know, film moments happen. And you're just like, oh, fucking here it comes. But so not only do they stay friends, but the relationship dynamic stays true through the end. Cliff does all the heavy lifting as the stuntman. While Rick is the star, gets right. a lot of the credit. So while Cliff's doing all the hard shit, Rick's just sh- chilling, hanging out. But he's the famous one at the end of the day. Right. right? The ending plays this plays out this way as well. So while Rick is relaxing in his pool, Cliff is beating the bejesus out of the Manson family. With a dog with, food with can. With a dog food can. Right. And, and with his bare fist. And then slamming face into the wall repeatedly. Yes. Um, and what is... Shockingly to say, maybe the most gratuitous scene of violence in Tarantino's filmography. Right. And that's fucking saying something. Uh-huh. Um, but it in brought, the end, though... It brought me right back to the Bear Jew scene, where it's just clear, unadulterated, unfiltered violence. Yeah, yeah. Just right there, right in front of your face, and you're just like, well, that happens. Yeah. Uh, but if you think about it, Cliff does all the heavy lifting... But Rick has the best scene where he comes out with a flamethrower. Right. So it stays true right mm-hmm. to the end. Yeah. Uh, that flamethrower actually is the best use of Chekhov's gun ever, in my opinion. I uh, What is Chekhov's gun? Um, is that a, uh, is that a, a film it's a term? Tro- it's a trope, right. So um, Chekhov's gun is if you see a gun in a film, it will be used later. Mm. It doesn't have to be a gun. It's called Chekhov's gun because it's about a gun, but it could be any other item. Really, gotcha. Right. Um, in this case, you see, of course, the um, flashback to the film he starred in where he used the flamethrower. Right. Um, then later, you actually see the flamethrower in the corner of his, like, um, 
shed or whatever out by the pool. Right, yeah. So, and then he comes out with, man, when he came out with that fucking thing strapped to his back, the theater erupted. It was like watching. I know. It, it was just joy. It yeah. was so, which sounds kind of weird to say. We just talked about how it was like the most violent part of Tarantino. And he ever just written. lit this girl on fire. Right. He <laughs> just lit this woman on fire in his fucking pool. That's insane. But everybody was just like, I don't know. It was, it's yeah. weird. It's weird. It probably says something bad about us as people. Uh, but it was, it was awesome. I don't know. I don't know what else to say, really. I, no, I, I think, well, maybe it does, but clearly this movie has several moments like that where there were terrible things done by terrible people or, you know, terrible things done by, you know, people who act terrible sometimes. And you're meant to kind of laugh about it because it is, you know... A little campy and over the top and yeah my my philosophy on anything like that is as long as you understand something that's fake versus real like right. fake violence can be enjoyable like horror movie violence can mm-hmm. be kind of cornball and enjoyable this with this i thought was hysterical real violence isn't funny right so i think as, as long as you try to approach it with a healthy view like that yeah i don't want to say it's probably okay but it's probably okay you know <laughs> right yeah makes sense I agree with you 100% about the acting. I think this is Leo's best performance in a film. Um, I think this is, if not Pitt's best, it's definitely his coolest. It's up there with Moneyball for me. I think mm-hmm. I think that was the one where a lot of people were like, holy shit, Brad Pitt can kind of act. And I've been right. like, and I was just like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you watch movies, you would know yeah, that. If you ever watched him in a movie that he gave a shit in and wasn't just cast because he's, I don't know, Brad fucking Pitt. Right. You might have if, known if that. If you saw something other than Troy. Oh, Troy. <laughs> he, he tried. God bless him. But, All right. Um, I think the two people that really stole the movie. Okay, so let me let me back up. DiCaprio and Pitt are throwing heat, mm-hmm. right? They're throwing just full on, like, this is, they're pushing, uh, you know, bottom of the eighth no-no, okay? Right. They're, they're throwing heat. Margot Robbie was fucking transcendent She in this sank movie. their battleship. She came out and blew them completely off the screen. I agree with you. The longest segment of hers, I guess, where she, it starts with her going to buy the book. She picks up the hippie. Um, goes to buy the book and then goes across the street and watches the movie that Sharon Tate actually stars in. Right. And, um, that was probably the best stretch of the movie. Mm-hmm. She is just blowing the doors off the fucking place. And there was a lot of talk, particularly after, I think it was Khan that this debuted at. Yeah. Where it was like, um, why does she only have 12 lines? And I feel like, so I'm of two opinions on this. First, if that's the way you're inter- interacting with art, you fucking failed somewhere. Right. Um, particularly for the notoriously visual medium of film. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's my big picture take. Um, my smaller, more direct take about Robbie's performance in particular is that you missed the fucking point if you were pissed off that she didn't talk enough. Right. Because she didn't need to. She acted with her face. Her eyes, like she fucking lights up the screen. You can feel the joy that she had right. as the people in the theater around her cheered and laughed at the scenes of Sharon Tate in the movie. Uh, and I can't remember the film they showed, but that were like the funny parts that they were laughing at. She's just like thrilled because right. it's like her first taste of fame, basically. Yeah. And she's just like so happy that people like her performance. Mm. 
I don't need her to be like, I'm happy that people like my performance as a line of dialogue, right? right? Yeah, uh, I mean, I what I don't understand is why people don't understand that, but they totally get how Tom Hardy hacks, acts with his face, which is also true. Like, he played yeah. Bane, he played whatever character that is in Dunkirk, he played a bunch of other characters where he... Uh, oh, uh, and his role in Mad Max Fury Road, mm-hmm. um, where he had his face covered he had for literally most of a cage on his face for a large chunk of that movie. Right, and uh, the man can act with a lot of his face covered. Mm-hmm. So uh, why is it so fucking hard for people to understand that having the most lines in a goddamn movie doesn't make you, you know, the better actor or gives you more opportunity to prove yourself a better actor? than the other actors in the movie. Mm. Now, to be fair to people making that criticism, even though, like I said, they have failed miserably and should really reconsider how they um, assess take film. him and assess art, um, I think there is a legitimate conversation to be made about things like representation or like how things are portrayed. Sure. But to me, that's a different discussion than, why did Margot Robbie only say 12 lines in this movie? Mm-hmm. That's fucking dumb. Right. That's just dumb. The other person that I think really tried her best to steal the movie and may have just about succeeded was Margaret Qualley, who played Pussycat, one of the Manson, one right. of the Manson family. Yep. Uh, that Pitt picks up and takes back to Spawn Ranch. Her personality is so palpable. Yeah. Um, we were talking about this off air, and I was like, you know, I mentioned the same thing I said a few minutes ago. Like, I think this may be Pitt's best performance. If it's not, you know, it's in the discussion at the very least. And she's just blowing him off the screen. Right. In, in their scene together. Yeah. Um, I, I agree 100% about her emotions um, being palpable. Where she's just like so thrilled that he picks her up. Right. And then immediately on a dime she turns when the cops drive by. And she's like, fucking pigs! Like, right. I just like, I was like, oh, oh, it's real, real. Yeah. You know? <laughs> she, she very much felt like... That kind of person that you would have in your life that you could put up with, like, for a day every every, every quarter of, of the right. year. Like, four times a year, that's the best day you have. And right. the rest of the, the, rest and, of the and, time, and you're And it's like, just fucking exhausting. Right. But the rest of the time, because like, I just don't have it in me. Right. <laughs> she's, and it's it's not, like, to any fault of her own. She's just so happy. Like, she'd give you diabetes. I was going to say, like, it's not a knock on... on her performance at all it's just like it's all the way up to a hundred but in a way that it's not like overacting or campy right exactly yeah um like i said you could just really feel the hatred she had to the cops the joy that she felt and the like the like the scene in the trailer where she's like charlie's really gonna dig you man talking to cliff it's just like that was such a good scene she just like oozes sensuality and like just she just seems like a cool cool ass person right and then she flips of course on cliff and it's just like but even before that like the fear in her eyes um when he's like walking up to the house on spawn ranch trying to check on his friend george right and she's just like it it does the close-up on her face she's like biting her lip and she looks like really anxious and afraid and i was just like oh man she just is like I know. Bottom of the ninth, fucking grand slam. Game's I, over. Get out. You know? Yeah, for sure. I am. I am definitely going to earmark uh, this actress. I. Uh, do you know her Ma- name? Margaret Qualley. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, I. Uh, I'm very excited to see where uh, the rest of her career takes her. Um, yeah. I'll definitely be following. Like her I said, everybody in films. this movie brings it. Yeah. Uh, her. Her and Margaret Robbie, in my opinion, brought it the hardest. 
Yeah, for sure. So one thing uh, you kind of touched on uh, the on Spawn Ranch, mm-hmm. uh, for, you know, just in passing a second ago. Uh, that's actually one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie because, mm-hmm. you know, just not to keep beating a dead horse with this whole like my favorite is the you know the unfolding of the plot and blah blah blah. But I really feel like this is the point where the movie starts to ramp up and Agreed. gain a little bit Agreed. of traction and direction and and really fully develop. And, and you start to get a real sense of just everything that's going on. Right. And, and especially that uh, trademark Tarantino tension. Uh, ooh, that's a- I'm so glad you brought that up because one of the things I thought, like... I just had this impending sense of dread. Right. As that scene built. I was like, someone is going to get fucked. I was ready. Right I was here. like, I was like, I'm about to watch Brad Pitt be murdered by the Manson family in right. George Spawn's kitchen. Yeah. You know what I mean? And Tarantino completely fucking subverted it on me. I know. When he goes in and he's just like, George is this decrepit old man laying in bed. And he's like, George. And I'm just like, George is dead, dog. You need to get the fuck up out of there. Tarantino, he played the the world's greatest bitch you thought moment. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like really, I was just like, oh man, I I was waiting for as he walked deeper into Spawn's bedroom. Right. I was just waiting for the camera to pan around to be like at his front, and then you always know, I, I was just like waiting for one of the Manson family to be there with a knife, and I was just like, oh dog, it ain't got to be like this. Yeah, yeah. We're uh, or or maybe what what's her name? Uh, uh, I was about to say kitty. It's pussy, right? Pussycat. Yeah, pussycat. Um, I, I was just waiting for her to be like, yeah, I uh, I uh, sat on his face too much earlier today and I suffocated him with my, it's like, my vagina. It was actually Squeaky that was sleeping with him, uh, both in the film and in real life. But that's, that's right. here or there. Yeah. Um, Either way. And then and then he goes up and finally wakes him up and George is like, what the fuck do you want? And it's Bruce Dern just being like right. this bitchy old man. And it was <laughs> so, I was just like, oh, Quinn, you motherfucker. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that, that was, that was pretty great. And then, uh, and the, the scene, it, it just ends by him beating the shit out of some guy that clearly needs a dental plan. <laughs> yeah. Driving off. What, another thing that's really interesting about that scene is like it, the juxtaposition between it and the scenes that, um, Leo DiCaprio as Rick are going through. Right. Where Rick is playing a TV cowboy. Mm-hmm. Cliff is basically living the TV cowboy life. Like he's he's actually having the cowboy moment where he's walking that's up actually, to Spawn's house. That, that's a great point. I, and I never coming, and then he's coming back and like the whole family is staring at him and mm-hmm. just like I was like oh I, and I have some more notes on things like that. But. That's that's a cool parallel. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm glad that you drew that one and brought it to uh, my attention here because the one that I drew the most was the uh the the not necessarily ending but the tailoring off of DiCaprio's career versus um Margot Robbie uh playing as Sharon Tate's career mm-hmm. taking off and how those were kind of you know the, it was jumping around clearly in the movie between right. kind of the three of them but you know, there was there was a period where it felt like it was bouncing back and forth between the two of them, and you could clearly see these. Um, I don't know if parallel is the right word, but um, you know this this cross of you know his career going down and her career going up, 
um, and and just the the feelings that come with that, and and you know dealing with that kind of mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know decline in success and and uh, and gaining success. Right. I actually have uh, some other notes about some similar things. So Tarantino gets a bad rap by a lot of people. I think it's increasingly the sort of in or cool thing to dislike Tarantino and I mean some of this bad rap I think is justifiable the dude likes feet and you know everybody's got their thing and this movie it's like he read all the people on the internet saying he liked feet so he threw a bunch of them in there right and while that doesn't really bother me I don't find it that disconcerting it's kind of weird you know I'll I'll give him that it's kind of innocuous that's also true. It could be a lot worse, what his, what his quote-unquote thing could be. Right. But he also has things that I don't think he gets enough credit for. So, for example, there's a very excellent bit of foreshadowing from Rick. Okay. At one point, towards the beginning, where he's like, I'm on the downswing, and who the fuck I got living next to me? Roman Polanski, who just, like, I think he just won the Oscar at the point of this movie, takes place. Right, Rosemary's it, Baby? Yeah, and then and he's like, fucking Sharon Tate. They're on the up, and I'm the old fucker living here, you know. And he's got his face in, on this big-ass portrait painted, like, in his, in in his, his driveway. driveway. Yeah, but what he says is, like, man, I'm one pool party, one, like, Polanski pool party away from being a big star again. You know how the film ends? With him in the pool and then getting invited up to Polanski's house after mm-hmm. they kill the Manson family. Yeah. Um, that was a badass ending. It was. God damn it. It was. I mean, it was. And tying back to uh, what you said in the beginning about this kind of being a a, a fairy tale mm-hmm. is it had a very fairy tale like ending. Right. Like where I said. It, it, instead of it being this big climactic thing where, I mean, granted, it did have a climactic ending uh, to an extent where you know towards the end of the movie things kind of exploded um explosively um for lack of better words um but yeah the the ending sequence of him talking to shit what is emile hirsch's character jc Brin. thank you um talking to him and it just eases off like the, mm. the movie just kind of eases out and then it does that kind of classic like yeah, camera pan up. pans up yeah. and then it, the title pops up and I was yeah. like man this is fucking perfect perfect exactly right. yeah uh, but there's that Pacino's character the producer I and I can't remember the character's name but yeah. he he says to he says to Rick uh, towards the beginning when he's interviewing him or when he's not interviewing him but talking to him in the restaurant and he says he's like look here's what your role is basically you keep getting work in pilots as the heavy you're the familiar face that used to be the guy that everybody knows and recognizes. You come in, bring legitimacy to the new guy who kicks your ass as the new good guy and you're the bad guy in the pilot, mm-hmm. right? Later, Tarantino uses Bruce Lee's character in this film. Well, he uses the Bruce Lee character in this film in the same way to set up Cliff. Mm-hmm. Where um, he shows that Cliff is a legitimate badass and a legitimate tough guy. Um, now, I know there's been a lot said about about the Bruce Lee character and the Bruce Lee's portrayal in this film. It's not really my place to say anything about that. Um, I understand that his daughter has a lot of negative things to say about it. And that's certainly, I understand. Um, that said, <clears throat> it's still fiction. And I think that if anybody looks at this and it's like, that's how Bruce Lee was. And some random stuntman could have kicked his ass. That person is not worth listening to. Right. That, that person is either um, 
doesn't know who Bruce Lee is or they're 12 years old and they have shitty parents because they didn't explain Bruce Lee well enough. Uh, and, and furthermore, if they're getting their information about Bruce Lee from their parents and not from the internet, they're using the internet wrong. Yeah. So basically, so there's that. But one thing that I thought of, um, and I'm glad you touched on, um, this, you know, Bruce Lee thing. One thing that I thought of, uh, it was either yesterday or earlier today. Um, where, you know, you're right, people have been making this a little bit of an issue and and how Bruce Lee's, you know, character uh, in the movie, you know, he, in real life, you know, he was a very, um, you know, caring individual, very, very cool, nice, um, you know, very zen. Uh, he wasn't this, you know, blowhard that he's kind of portrayed as. Mm. Um, or, I don't know, how would you describe his so, character? So, uh, very full of himself. Very arrogant in yeah. the film. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, sorry, I, I, I guess I thought blowhard was a little bit synonymous with uh, full of themselves. Yeah, but I mean, kind of, kind either of. way, anyways, um, I think one <clears throat> one way to look at this is instead of focusing on them trying to make Bruce Lee look like that, in comparison to how Cliff reacts to 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 the fight and and you know egging him on and wanting to to fight Bruce Lee and how you know that whole thing goes down I think says a lot more about Cliff and how we were you brought up earlier that the people in this movie have moments where they are clearly shitty people right and so I think that's one way you can go about looking at this is that it says more about Cliff's character than it does about Bruce Lee uh, no, I think I think I think in a lot of ways that's a fair point. I know there was a, like this weird pushback on on the internet where people were like, "Oh, that's not what happened. It's a dream sequence," and that's kind of dumb. I think it's clearly meant to be representative of something that happened, but it's Cliff's memory, mm-hmm. uh, or it's like played as Cliff's memory. So there's it's probably fair to say there's some exaggeration going on. Right. You know, I don't think anybody is ever memory's a tricky thing, and I don't think we're ever 100% honest with ourselves. And I'm kind of basing this on a couple of things. Um, number one, of course, the cocky, arrogant guy that is, you know, looks like Brad Pitt mm-hmm. and, and is made out of abs, basically. Right. He's probably going to be a little full of himself. Right. Um, and two, like, there's no way you could put that kind of dent in a car without another car. Right. You know, um, so, you know, that's just my opinion. I don't like to assume intent. I know Tarantino really, really worships at the altar of Bruce Lee, so... Clearly, I mean, Uma Thurman and Kill Bill. Uh, moving on before we get canceled by the internet. Uh, another really interesting point in Rick's book that he's reading on set. The character of Easy Breezy is the baddest guy around until he hurts his hip. Later, Cliff, who is the baddest guy around in the movie, gets stabbed in the hip. Yeah. These things don't get written by accident. Like, Tarantino knows what he's fucking doing, and he's a good writer. Right. You know, um, there's others and others, and there's there's other examples of stuff like this in other movies. For example, in Inglorious Bastards, the character of, of Hans Landa says, um, the Fuhrer brought me down out of my nice home in the Alps, which are, of course, mountains in Switzerland and Germany, and in that section of Europe. And Aldo Rain says he came out of the mountains in East Tennessee. Like, he mirrors characters. This is not shit you do if you're an idiot. Right. Like, these are intentional things that good writers do. Um, so, like I said, I don't think he gets enough credit for that. I, I think a lot of people just look at Tarantino like, oh, yeah, the guy with the violence and the pop culture references. And it's like, he hasn't really been that for, like, 20 years. Right. You know. Um, so, that's just kind of like my little soapbox. 
Um, I know earlier you talked about like your your ranking of Tarantino movies and where this one would fit. I I don't have like a quote unquote definitive Ted ranking right. necessarily. Um, for a long time, I was like Jackie Brown is number mm-hmm. one, and then everything else is fighting for second place. Then I saw Glorious Bastards, and I was like, okay, uh, depending on what day you ask, it's going to be one of these two movies in first place, and everything else fighting for second place. Right. And now I'm like, fuck, I got to really think about this. <laughs> I think ultimately, it kind of doesn't matter. It's, it's all personal preference anyway. Whichever one you enjoy the most is going to be your favorite, and whichever one you don't is going to be your least favorite. It doesn't right. really matter. It's just a fun thing to think about. I, I like thinking about stupid shit like, hmm. You know, what were my favorite movies of this? You know, what do I take the most enjoyment out of? I'm a fucking loser. That's the kind of shit I do. Anyway, um, I have one last point, really. Uh, the Playboy Mansion scene had a really had a couple of really good parts to it. Mm-hmm. Damian Lewis playing Steve McQueen was fucking inspired. Yeah. I was like, holy shit. That guy really looks like fucking Steve McQueen. <laughs> but... Um, more than that, more than just the fact that he could pass, he, you know, he could win at least second place in a Steve McQueen lookalike contest. More so than that, he gives a speech that's really exposition, it's really expository and to an absurd degree. But in a very Tarantino-esque kind but, of way. Yeah, in, in a way that kind of works. Um, it offers background on Tate, Polanski, and Sebring and their relationship. But yeah, also, in, in that sense, I didn't mind it so much because right. I am very ignorant in that sense. And, and I think it does, it does help if you don't know a lot. Like, I didn't know that. Right. So I was like, yeah, that's interesting. Didn't. That makes, you know, that makes the the relationship between Sebring as sort of like a hanger on in a lot of ways. He even mentions that. He's like, he knows one day Plants is going to fuck it up and he's going to be, he, Sebring is going to be there to pick up the pieces. Right. And I was like, okay, it's expository, but it, like, it, it, not all exposition is bad. Right. Right. Not all exposition is created equal. But there's also kind of like a sadness to what he says where he's like, you know, um, it, it kind of highlights the world that the world is changing, that the situations are changing. Like in the past, Steve McQueen as the coolest motherfucker in the world, mm-hmm. Sharon Tate would have been falling all over her fucking self. You know, Steve, like Steve McQueen was fucking Steve McQueen. Right. You know what I mean, like the Rolling Stones wrote a song called Starfucker, and Steve McQueen is heavily featured in it. Uh-huh. Like he probably did all right for himself, but he, it highlights that the world is changing. So. Like I said, in the past, she would have been swinging over him. But now he's like, I don't even have a fucking chance. I'm not at all what she's looking for. Right. You know, or, or by extension, you know, to extrapolate that, like what any of the newer generation, so to speak, is looking for. And that kind of, that that's really the theme of the film. You know? Yeah. The world's changing. What, what's my place in it? You know, what what is what is our place in it uh, in, in a lot of ways? So expectations change, desires change. I was just like, man. It's it's very fitting for where it sits in the film. It's not in the first five minutes, but it's definitely well in the beginning of the first act. I'd say it's in the first third. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and yeah, like, like you said, it does a really good job of setting a little bit of the tone for yeah. for the movie. It, to me, it was just a really nice encapsulation of what the movie was about overall right. a lot of people have been like oh it's a love letter to hollywood it's a nostalgia trip it's this and that and yeah it is all yeah. those things but really at its core like the theme of the movie is like the world gets sad motherfucker because <laughs> things are not staying the same for very long well i mean i don't know you could definitely argue that um it, it's all artist subjective right it's what you take from it yeah but uh, like I said, like we said at the beginning, I fucking love this movie. Mm-hmm. I cannot wait to see it again. I'd really like to see it on film. 
I yeah, know in 35 millimeter. It's playing a 35 millimeter at the Bell Court. Um, and not just at the Bell Court, a lot of theaters nationwide that are equipped to run film, it's playing a 35 millimeter for. Um, uh, I know at the Bell Court, at least, it's pretty much for the duration of the regular run in theaters. Okay. Some other places, it may be a more limited thing. I don't, I don't know. Um, the first time we saw it on opening night, it was on a digital projection, which, I mean, that's most movies now. It, right. it looked good, but film just looks better, just the way vinyl sounds better, mm-hmm. you know, because um, I'm a snob, basically. <laughs> uh, but I do, I can't wait to see it again. Um, yeah. It, it's definitely... Really hoping that they end up doing that uh, extended release that that Tarantino was talking about. Yeah, so they did this with the Hateful Eight, where they did like the. I don't think it was the Roadshow version. I think the Roadshow version is the one that they showed in theaters with an intermission. Yeah, um, but this one is like broken up, it, episodically. broken up episodically to four episodes, and it's like four hours long or very close to that. Yes, it's they, very long. <laughs> they talked about wanting to do that with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and yeah, I'd watch a four hour cut of this movie in a fucking heartbeat. Yeah, um, so. I'm very interested in that. Very interested in that. Yeah, it would be uh, it would be fun to see it done with this movie because I feel like cutting it episodically would be really fun since that is kind of how it's paced anyways. I definitely agree. So um like you could do that first day of them in like the restaurant and then driving home like that's a solid episode. Right. You know Sharon Tate, uh, Margot Robbie is Sharon Tate picking up the hippie, driving, getting the book, seeing the movie, Beginning and then coming back. Second, That's second a solid episode. Right. You know. It would be awesome to see, like, just one episode, just her. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, we said it. She she was throwing fucking heat in right. a movie full of people throwing heat. Right. You know. Um, it's no surprise that she, like, she's a good actress. It's not, like, a surprise that she's good in the movie. But, like I said, she just... Kick the shit out of everybody, basically, <laughs> performance-wise. Yeah, yeah, her performance uh, was was definitely great, but her her performance in Wolf of Wall Street will will always have a close place in my heart. Not just because she's you know quite attractive in that role, but uh, I mean she's attractive in every role. But uh, that I don't know for some reason I, I love that movie. I'm not sure. I mean, it's it's a fun movie to live vicariously through because it's so crazy and over the top. And we're totally getting off subject now uh, because we'll do a Wolf of Wall Street pod. I want to do a Scorsese pod because I have a lot of thoughts. Yeah, I fucking love Scorsese. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Right. Put a pin in that, listeners. For For all none of you that give a shit about what my (laughs) opinions on Martin Scorsese's filmography are. Right. You're all just like, when are you going to get to the new Marvel movie? Hey, we should we should make Mac like our fifth listener. We should convince him to listen to the podcast because he I think Mac he, would enjoy it. Mac yeah. and I get along. Right, the yeah. one time we've ever spoken. Yeah. So <laughs> Mac, if if you happen to be listening, or like if I've somehow convinced you to listen, not that you wouldn't, because you're you know a good friend of ours uh, and a fun person to talk to movies with. Uh, and, and in fact, you've been on the fucking podcast before, but you know, being on a podcast doesn't necessarily mean that you also listen. Um, this is quality content and definitely what the people care about. Yeah, for sure. You want to get to the shit that doesn't suck? We do. I want to do a new segment 
Um, assuming you don't have any more thoughts other than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood rules, go see it. It it does rule, and you should definitely go see it. Okay. Uh, a couple of quick hits. Um, a new segment that we'll call uh, Quick Hits. We're professionals. We actually had some market research about that, and we decided that was the best name. It's definitely not because I just said it out loud and was like, fuck it. That's good enough. <laughs> So it's tangentially related to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Of course, Margot Robbie uh, is in the new Birds of Prey movie that's filming now. That is the quasi-sequel to Suicide Squad or maybe like a spiritual successor of sorts. She plays Harley Quinn. It's it's based in the DC Universe. I can't remember who else is in it. Um, but she's playing Harley Quinn again. Yeah, um, I, I know Poison Ivy is supposed to be Poison in it, but I can't, in it. Remember I, I, can't, I can't remember And I want to say Black Canary is the third member of the Birds of Prey. It's, it's been a long time since I've read... Uh, read any comics really but uh, it just got announced today that John Wick director Chaz Tehelski is going to be overseeing the action scenes in that movie which just made that movie about 50 times better in my opinion indeed yeah Um, so I was kind of kind of looking forward to that as is just because again I like Marvel Robbie I I, I like you know Harley Quinn and I like DC Comics and the Birds Prey very cool so um, I was already kind of looking forward to it that really cemented the deal Uh, looks like Mary Elizabeth Winstead plays uh, oh no that's uh uh, she's credited as uh, Helena Bert- Bertin- Her- Helena Bertinelli slash Huntress. Okay, Huntress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huntress is one of the birds. Bird, duh. Um, All the comic fans so, are coming for me on the Twitter. So I don't see anyone credited as Poison Ivy yet, which means that I either Maybe misspoke yeah. about her being in it uh, or she that she be the villain, ha- but hasn't could be been wrong. casted yet. Well, I, I, I think it's, it's already filming, I think. So yeah, yeah maybe I, I she's could, not. I don't know. Maybe that was it for the new Batman movie they were talking about having Poison Ivy as a villain. Ali Wong is apparently in this movie, which is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, she's she's, cool. she's funny as fuck. Yeah. Um, and then the cinematographer Robert Richardson, cinematographer once upon a time in Hollywood, um, is going to be the cinematographer for Venom Two. Uh, That's just weird. I mean, it's not. But but bad, I dig it. But it, yeah, it's cool. That movie's shaping up to be very interesting. Like Andy Serkis, um, directing. Really? Yeah. Has um, he directed I, anything? I don't. I, I'm not sure. I I just but I like, just know him as a great. Uh, right, like uh, mocap and, and yeah, mocap, mocap yeah. Act, actor, um, and yeah, he is a great actor for sure. Yeah, I don't know that he's directing anything, but I'm really interested because I think f- my thought process on this is like, as someone who has a very deep knowledge of what it takes to make CG acting look good, mm-hmm. I'm very interested to see his take on a movie that's going to rely heavily on CG. Yeah, um, so I'm interested in that. Uh, that's a great cinematographer they just got. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm really kind of curious to see how this shapes out. Yeah. Those are the only two I have because this was something that we literally just decided to do on the fly because we're professionals. Right. And that's the kind of shit our audience of no one expects. Exactly. Finally, uh, our last segment, the recurring segment that we always have, shit that doesn't suck. Uh, David, do you want to go first? I just rewatched uh, The Dark Knight Rises because mm-hmm. they, uh, they didn't just recently add The Dark Knight to Netflix. It's been on there for a while now, but... I uh, I just decided to rewatch that the other day, and then since I rewatched The Dark Knight, I figured I'd rewatch Dark Knight Rises because we are currently out of internet. So I'm going through all our old DVDs and rewatching the, uh, whatever we have on Blu-ray, and I fucking love that movie. I know we we both discussed off-air that it 
is definitely not without its problems, but yeah, I, it I, is I, a beautiful movie to watch. I think 50% of that movie is amazing, particularly the cinematography. It is a beautiful movie, I agree. And then like 40 to 50% of that movie is catastrophically fucking terrible. If you don't think too hard about the storyline and just pay attention to the cinematography and then Bane's speaking parts, mm-hmm. uh, then you, you're, you're golden. Yeah. Uh, I remember there was a lot of backlash. Backlash is maybe a too strong of a word, but there was a lot of discussion about like Tom Hardy's performance and his voice. Yeah, and those people and can go get fucked. I was like, dude, I think it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's kind of... I can understand it being kind of hard to discern what he's saying in a theater full of people that are probably talking, but like watching it on TV, like it's fine. As a person, and I know you can relate to this too, as a person who very much enjoys the subtitles uh, being on, I was watching it last night without subtitles and I could understand everything that mm-hmm. he was saying. Yeah. In, in some parts, yeah, it's, it's a little bit difficult to discern what, what he's saying, but it's not impossible. Right. And I think he just has a lot of really good lines. Right. In that movie. Yeah. Um, the whole intro sequence of hijacking the plane that he willingly got on. Yeah. Uh, um, that has one of my favorite lines where he's just like, perhaps he's wondering why you'd shoot a man before throwing it off. Right. What a fucking dickhead thing to say. Right. Like you have to be, you have to be pretty fucking sure yourself to bust a line like that. Yeah. And, and you get a very clear understanding right off the bat of the kind of people that he has <clears throat> attracted to be his, like his posse or his followers. Mm-hmm by the look on that guy's face when he says, they expect one of us in the wreckage, brother. And he's, and he's just like, I... He's like, all right, cool. Yeah, I can be the dude that blows up in this canister. Yeah. The uh, I think my favorite part of that movie is where he, he goes, and I can't remember the other character's name, but it's the, the rich guy who hires him to basically destroy yeah. it. And he's just like, you know, I... I gave you riches and money. And he's like, and you think this gives you power over me? Right. He, like, he just, he touches gen- the back of his neck. And I was like, oh, you puts finished. his hand on his shoulders, <laughs> like barely touching him. He's like, do you feel in control? Do right. You, do you do feel you, in charge? Right. Do you feel in charge? I was like, that dude is going to die. die. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And he sure as fuck he did. died. He yeah. Did. Um, so yeah, I think half of that movie, like I said, is really good. And the other half is so bad that I don't ever want to watch it again. <laughs> You just gotta ignore those. Just, I just keep my finger on the fast forward button, basically, right. or or the mute button, <laughs> or the mute button, whatever. Yeah, I just kind of anyway totally stole your thunder, but nope. Yeah. I mean, that turned into a cool little mini yeah. discussion yeah. about uh, Dark Knight Rises. We might we might do a, a, a Nolan trilogy pod. We should yeah. do that. I have a lot of thoughts on Nolan as a director. Mm-hmm. You'll find a recurring theme of me saying I have a lot of thoughts because I have a lot of thoughts about a lot of things. <laughs> Anyways, what's your uh, shit that doesn't suck? Uh, so my shit that doesn't suck. Um, is uh, Agira, The Wrath of God. Okay. Which sounds badass and is badass. Uh, this is a 1972 movie from Werner Herzog, which a lot of people probably recognize that name. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of late, he's done a lot of documentaries. He did a really, really good one called Cave of Forgotten Dreams about eight or nine years ago um, that I believe won some pretty prestigious awards. Um, it's very good. It was on Netflix for a long time. I'm not sure if it still is. Um, this, Agira the Wrath of God, is about, it's sort of like a fantasy version of a real event that happened. Um, so the character of Agira was a real, um, a real conquistador who was called El Loco, the the crazy one or the madman. He 
literally styled himself as the wrath of God, the prince of freedom, and the king of terra firm. Um, you want to see a dude that's chewing up some scenery in a performance? Klaus Kinski, as Agira in this movie, is eating the scenery and asking for seconds. Yeah. Uh, he goes for it in a lot of ways. All right. It's a very good movie. It's a fucking beautiful movie. It's shot on location in South America. Nice. The cinematography is fucking astounding. The backdrops are gorgeous. The uh, soundtrack is like this weird, like ethereal, like, um, I was going to say synth driven. It's not like really synth driven, like doom, doom, like you would think of like a bass driven sound, but it's just like these ethereal synths and it's just like kind of haunting. And the whole tone of the movie is kind of haunting as, hmm. as, um, shit just gets worse and worse for this group. And, and Agira goes more and more insane. Um, Great movie. It's available on Amazon Prime as well as the Criterion channel, which okay. I'm sure David is sick of me talking about because nah. I bring it up basically every time that we speak to one another. But it is legitimately the best $10, in my opinion, that you can spend on a streaming service. Uh, but I highly recommend that. I've been watching a lot of stuff on there and uh, I highly recommend the service. They still do not pay me and they're probably not going to because they have professionals that write for them and they're just like, who is this fucking idiot? That would be pretty dope <laughs> to get the Criterion streaming services a sponsor though. Honestly, they don't even have to sponsor us. Just give me like six months free. I don't care at this point. You know what? Right. They don't even do that. I will keep paying for it because it's worth it. <laughs> it straight up is. Yeah. Um, well, we're not like one of those mindless, dumbass uh, Instagram influencers. Give us free shit and we'll promote your hotel. <laughs> so I, I can promise this. Um, I personally will never ask for a dime from anyone. My pride precludes that from ever happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll never hear me trying to pimp out a Patreon um, I will never, I will never do a pitch for something that I don't like. It's just, I got too right. much pride for all that. Yeah. I realize I'm shooting myself in the foot and in like a year when we have 10 listeners or something, I'm going to be like, uh, next up, this podcast is brought to you by Wix. <laughs> <laughs> right. Some Get dumb yourself sh- a website. <laughs> right. Some dumb shit. And um, here we are promoting shit that, uh, shit that does suck. Anyway, uh, I think that's all I got. Um, David, do you have any other thoughts? Uh, I am fresh out of thoughts. That's no surprise. Um, so we <laughs> Thanks, will <put> a, <laughs> we'll Thanks, put a, Terry. <laughs> all right now. Uh, so we'll put a bow on this. Um, as always, you can find us on pretty much every social media site by searching for Geek Garage Podcast. Except, uh, except Snapchat. We're not on that garbage. We're definitely not cool enough for a Snapchat. No. I had a Snapchat once. Yeah? How did yeah. that feel? So, funny story about the Snapchat. I was trying to send a snap, I believe, a video, whatever it's called. <laughs> yes, I, was tra- I sound like fucking 80 years old right now. Uh, <laughs> whatever the kids are calling it. Back when I had the internet, no, uh, I, was tra- I was sending a snap, uh, a, a, a bit of a hot and heavy snap to this person I was uh, uh-huh. involved with at the time. Uh-huh. I accidentally sent it to the snap help team. <laughs> <laughs> Respond back like, bro, wrong number. Uh, they did not. Luckily for me, it was not uh, not anything too too lewd. Sure, uh, there was no there was no dick pic involved. Oh, uh, that fuck. W- it was about thirteen seconds after I said that I was like, I'm done with Snapchat. Delete it off your phone. Delete it off. I not only deleted it off my phone, I destroyed that phone. Uh, but anyway, that was that's the story of Ted having a snap. Um, you can find us on pretty much any other social media site. Yes. Search for Geek Garage Podcast. 
Um, we love interacting with the no fans we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you do have opinions on the podcast, feel free to give us a shout on any of those social medias. Definitely yes. like and subscribe to us on all the major podcast platforms. Google leave Play. Us, leave us a rating and review, right? Please. So, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. Um, I'm sure there are others that I don't know about, but uh, definitely leave us a review. If you're going to leave us a bad review, don't. That will hurt our feelings and David will cry. I will because I am uh, a giant wuss. He is soft. I am. He is soft. Um, But do lie about it. Give us a good review. Tell all your friends they regret telling your friends and have your friends regret knowing you. Um, that's usually how that goes. You're great at selling this podcast. <laughs> I'm just trying to, like I said just at the beginning, I'm trying to keep the expectations low. So there's nowhere to go but up. Exactly. That exactly. is the new slogan for this fucking podcast. <laughs> yeah. Once we get the banner printed, This we're is as bad that- as it gets. It can only go up from here. <laughs> I wonder if when we get our banner printed, if we put that on our banner and then go to conventions with that br- banner, if it'll be any more eye-catching for people that walk by. I have some thoughts on how to get it eye-catching. I don't know that it will be a lot by the convention. Put a big old penis on it? That's an idea. <laughs> uh, just well, throwing it out we'll there. We'll put a pin in that. I, I don't know if Vistaprint <laughs> would print that, but uh, it might violate their, we'll their terms of service. We'll see. Uh, speaking of conventions, we do have some plans to attend a couple of upcoming conventions. GalaxyCon right. in Louisville, which yeah. is in uh, November. I think it's the 22nd to the 24th. Something like that, I think. Sounds right. Uh, and then Yamacon over in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, uh, which is, I think, December 6th through the 8th. That'll pretty much round out our year as far as conventions go. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you see us out there, come say hi, get a free button. Um, thank you to everybody, again, who came and, saw, and spoke with us at Kayakon a couple of weeks ago. That was cool, even though we were totally unprepared and looked like a couple of jackasses. That's nothing new either. Um, we'll see everybody at MTAC next year. That was a lot of fun. Probably yep. too much fun. <coughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, so that's it. Um, As always, stay geeky, whatever the other shit David says is, and then uh, watch more movies. Be kind, stay geeky, eat less of cheesecake. Or, or, and hear me out, don't do any of that, just watch more movies because movies make life better. We can can come up with our own sign-off line for the Ghost of the Movies episodes. I think I just did. What what was it again? You ruined it. I didn't ruin it. Mm. Watch what? What was it? Watch lots of movies. Watch more movies because movies make life better. That's a good one. I know it is. I I thought it up. All right. You know what, David? Just we're done. This podcast is over. All right. Hey, I want a new ev- contract. Everyone, go watch more movies because movies makes life better. You ruined it. How do you do that? I don't know.